Welcome back to the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner, Research Fellow in Photography within the School of Art here at the University of Arkansas. I also want to acknowledge the School of Art for their support in making this podcast possible. Today's guest is Morgantown, West Virginia-based artist, Raymond Thompson Jr. Raymond Thompson Jr. is a photographer whose work focuses on race, identity, and contested histories. He currently works as a multimedia producer at West Virginia University, where he is also pursuing his MFA in photography. He received his MA in journalism from the University of Texas at Austin and a BA in American Studies from the University of Mary Washington. His freelance clients include the New York Times, ProPublica, Google, BuzzFeed News, Merrill, NBC News, and the Associated Press. In this episode, we speak about Raymond's career as a photojournalist, his project Appalachian Ghosts, current works in progress, and much more. Without further ado, here's episode 12 with Raymond Thompson Jr. Enjoy. to try to start these organically um, like so we can catch up with one another and stuff like that yeah it's been yeah it's been a minute i've not seen you since uh the portfolio review probably was that three years ago or two years um two or three years ago i was trying to think of that before we started so was it uh 20 between sometime between 2016 and 2018 yeah 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 i want to say it was two years ago possibly because I was, I just started grad school again. I was in my first year of grad school, so yeah. yeah. But so, was that the second time that I had seen oh, you at the portfolio? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I saw you the first time when we, uh, the first time I went, you were there two years before that one. So I did my my two right in a row, um, okay. my two invites um, for that right in a row. So it was yeah, the first time was two years before that. Yeah, because I remember like a, I was having memories of like, I remember seeing Raymond on two different occasions. Yeah. One, you were not doing your MFA. And then the second time you had started your MFA. Yeah, I was just about to, I think. I think I had, yeah. or maybe I was like six months in and I had like a body of work that I used to apply to get into, for the MFA program um, mm-hmm. that I did right before I did my MFA, the imaging and managing body. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. Was an interesting experience, right? To first go for photojournalism portfolio, and then go back there with a more um, more edit, fine art editorial attempt you know, at a portfolio. Exactly. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I like to start each episode yeah. uh, with asking the photographer's background uh-huh. because I think that um, uh-huh. that part of our lives always plays into a role of how we get to where we are in the present. No, totally. Um, so where did yeah. you grow up and what were I, some of your first interactions with the camera and just art in general? Wow. That's see, I grew up right outside Washington, DC in Arlington, Virginia. Um, my dad was stationed at Fort Myer. So I grew up right outside the Arlington cemetery. Um, and for me, like I had a very, I think it was pretty eclectic, very diverse, um, experience in my younger days before moving out into more, uh, out into Virginia properly. Um, Cause that was a completely different experience than living right next to Washington DC. Um, so 
dad was in the military, grew up in Arlington. Uh, you know, people spoke all kinds of languages all over the place. You know, it was very diverse. I never really thought about race or anything like that. I was also pretty young. Um, my best friend, I think, was from like Pakistan. This is like this is like nineteen nineties too, right? So um, it was just a very diverse and interesting experience to to have. Um, some point in high school, we moved out to Stafford County, Virginia, which is um, about 45 minutes south of 95 or 45 minutes out to Washington, D.C. It's about 45 minutes away from D.C. South going towards Richmond. And there was a completely different experience. It's the first time I was landed in a place where I was uh, truly a minority, you know, truly was in a space that was primarily white space. So, um, yeah, and from there, I graduated high school in that space and eventually went to college for a year. Uh, I was a biology major, believe it or not, <laughs> initially, which was wild because, yeah, I can't know why I was a biology major. But I did that for the first year, and then I kind of didn't like it that much. I was trying to figure out stuff, and I was like, I want to be an engineer. And no, I really didn't want to be an engineer, so I ended up... Uh, Dropping out and going to Northern Virginia Community College was my first actual experience with photography. Um, I was going to the campus near Washington, D.C. in Arlington. And from there, you know, I discovered photography. I was taking my first classes, first black and white class. You know, we had that moment in the dark room, the print coming up, and I was pretty much hooked from that point on. Um, but also was taking like drawing and design classes too at the same time. So it's just I knew I was getting into art. And this felt like a path I could go down. Um, at some point during that time, I decided to, uh, I wanted to transfer, but I never finished my degree at Nova. Um, I ended up deciding to move to Chicago. Um, and I went to Chicago and I applied to Columbia College in Chicago. And uh, from there, I think I was, yeah, there's photojournalism track and then there was fine art track. And I was like, hmm. Is really taken by photojournalism at the time or the idea of documentary or photographing real life. Um, so I ended up taking, going down the photojournalism track at Columbia College in Chicago. Um, and there, and that's where I met John White. And yeah, and that started like a decade path of photojournalism. Um, having taken, I took three courses with John White at Columbia College Chicago. That's in fact, all. that's all I really did there was take his classes. Because at some point I took his classes and I ran out of money because <laughs> Columbia is expensive. <laughs> so I was living in the city, broke, scrambling enough cash to take, you know, a couple of John White classes and then just shooting in the city as much as I could and working at like a, a corporate record store called Coconuts in Chicago. Um, so I did that for about two or three years. Um, yeah, this my path is a long, winding journey it was not straight so i was there with john when i was at, when i was taking his classes at the eddie adams eddie adams workshop um so that was my first real like professional experience to say you can do this because for a long time i was always questioning whether i could do it or not you know i was like do i have the the skills or blah 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 because i felt like i'm a pretty shy individual i'm not that talkative like you know the things that make you a good reporter versus you know a good journalist versus a good photographer aren't, all, aren't always the same things like and I'm not that aggressive I, I kind of just like like to be fly on the wall quite a bit so I was questioning if this path was exactly what's for me um but taking John the way 
I don't know if you've, if you've ever taken his class or know, know John White, the way he teaches is very, this sort of almost religious church experience. <laughs> the photography is like, you know, the soul of photojournalism and all these, you know, he talks about the old trail. And you need to like, when you get off and not feeling great for that day, if you just like, instead of going down, the, if you always walk down that same sidewalk every day of your life, just taking that random turn. And when you take that random turn, you'll be on the old trail if you go on the old trail, then basically God will give you gifts of, of light and photojournalism, right? So, um, you know, that was, that was, that was John and, but yeah, he was probably the biggest influence in that part of my, my career and life was John White. Um, yeah. So after that, um, you know, I ended up, uh, I started interning, I was I started freelancing for this, uh, the Chicago Archdiocese newspaper mm-hmm. for the Spanish speaking uh, so, so it's called. I started freelancing for the um, the Chicago Catholico. It was called at the time, and that sent me all over the city to photograph like um, the the more Latinx part of the Catholic organization within Chicago. So a lot of masses, um, different parades, various things like that, which is pretty cool. Um, and around that same time, I you know I, I was in Colombia, but I was broke, so I ran out of money. Um, so I ended up like dropping out of there and going to Truman College, which is also in Chicago, just to get my associates in art while I was working at the record store and also freelancing for this organization. Um, so it's always been like a hustle, basically, for me. Um, but at some point, I started getting internships. First at the Door County Advocate in Wisconsin. Um, next was the uh, Times of Northwest Indiana. Um, I did I did that for about four months. I had an internship there. It was supposed to be like for a year, but that was the first time I got laid off from a newspaper. <laughs> the first, <laughs> not the last time to get laid off from a newspaper as a, as a photojournalist. Um, and from there, uh, after that, that Times of Northwest Indiana, I went to the King County Chronicle. And then after that, uh, I had gotten married. So me and my wife, we moved back to Virginia. Um, to, you know, be closer to family because she has some family here too. My, my folks are from there. And once I moved back there, I eventually landed my first staff photojournalism job at this little paper um, called the Culpeper um, Citizen out in Culpeper, Virginia, which again, is about two hours-ish from Washington, D.C., south of Virginia. So I was working in, the, in an exurb at that point, country, um, which is also interesting to be a black photographer working in the country in Virginia. Um, mm-hmm. But I could tell you stories about that. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's how I, that's how I kind of landed in, at least in photography, and started off my career. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Um, I, I know you've been like a, um, uh, you've worked as an editorial freelance photographer and photojournalist. Yeah. You've worn several different hats, um, and I remember you holding a staff position, but you just men- mentioned it was in Culpeper, Virginia. Um, and I think that's when I first became aware of your work when uh, Instagram first mm-hmm. started up, and yeah. you could, you know, see people's work. Uh, more uh, readily than before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and can you tell me like what that journey has been like as a freelancer and sort of the working as a staff photographer? Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me take it through my staff. I mean, so it was working with the Culpeper Citizen, which was bought by this organization called Times Times Community Newspapers right outside Washington, D.C. So I got really close to D.C. 
And the time my goal was, I want to be a staff photographer for the Washington Post or the New York Times. You know, that was my trajectory. Um, and I did that for a few years, but I was realizing I wasn't quite feeling it as much. I was kind of, I did the community journalism, I, I did the community journalism thing for, you know, four or five years. And I covered enough parades and um, sports <laughs> Um, to last me a lifetime and so I decided to apply to grad school at the University of Texas at Austin um, and also I knew there are people there like Eli Reed and Donna DeCesare and the program's not huge but I really wanted to be around them and I sort of chose UT for that reason because I just wanted to hang out and be in Eli's presence um, <laughs> just to hear him you know do his thing and and I was also working with Donna DeCesare who I actually work with more than Eli but and, and Donna was like a real help in sort of helping me sort of figure out at least you know that I was really into research right and research is going to be a part of eventually my my, my practice as a photographer um, so yeah from there and then I did that and then from there it was like a, a thing where I just started to freelance after I graduated uh, but also was looking to go into video production and do um, multimedia. And that's what I ended up doing quite a bit more. Um, and I've always sort of done that. Um, and then also freelance as well. Um, so I've never really been like a full-time, you know, editorial um, editorial freelance photographer just on its own. Um, it's always been something I've done on the side of a second job um, for me. Because at the time it was really hard to scramble to put together put enough together to make a solid living just doing the freelance for me um, at the time. So I ended up, you know, always ended up getting like taking a job at Western University um, to be a multimedia producer for like their um, their communications, internal communication stuff. So doing lots of like marketing video, um, which eventually, weirdly enough, I kind of shifted back to doing mostly stills by the end of my time with them. Um, so, yeah, again, you know, it's like I've always sort of, I've, but the whole time I've been freelancing, right? A little bit here, a little bit there, and bigger and bigger gigs, you know, hoping that one day that maybe, you know, I'll be able to do, to pull enough together to actually, you know, make it work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but still, I mean, weirdly enough, I feel, you know, now I've gotten really a little extra busy, which is weird. I'm not used to, um, as far as like people requesting freelance work. But um, yeah, so. And plus, I was also in this position where, like, I was like, dude, it's like, do I want to really want my passion, which is photography, to be kind of polluted by the, the necessities of hustling and photography? Then, like, I was really kind of struggling with that, too. I was like, which one is more important, you know? Because the hustle sometimes is hard, you know, you know, trying to, you know, get, keep your gear up, you know, trying to get into your taxes at the end of the year, trying to make enough money. You know, you know, wanted to start a family. All these things were starting to like make it really hard just to freelance by itself. Yeah, um, and, and that last part you're just saying. Uh, I remember reading uh, Roy DeCarava's, um retrospective catalog, and he was talking about um, pretty much how much he hated freelancing. Did that for a number of years, but uh, once he got a teaching job at Hunter College, he was like. I'm leaving that behind because uh, he didn't really like it. He just, you know, like you were just saying that the pollution of, um, you know, the hustle and the things you really care about and also and in life uh, to the equation too, things you want to achieve in life. Um, but what was it like uh, working with Eli Reed and John H. White? 
I mean, these are two legendary African-American photographers. Well, John was just an inspiration. Um, he really, I mean, he was the reason why I probably stayed along the photojournalism track as long as I did, and also why it would probably never fully let go of me <laughs> at the same time. Um, he, all right, like he was, I mean, he basically, like, the way in which he explained and talked about photography was a very soulful, internalized experience. Um, so this intuitiveness, which he sort of instilled in us, was to sort of work from, the, in, the in, like, our inner soul and feeling and to trust that he, he taught us how to use our intuition in photography a lot, like how to rely solely on our intuition and to move and roll with it, you know, almost dance with it in a way. Um, so in that way, I'm like, I'm like, like John has like inspired like my, like John in, in inspired, the, I think the way in which I like to actually work when I have a camera in my hand um, still in that in today thinking about John's work um, or thinking about what John, the lessons that John taught us. Um, well, Eli, I mean, Eli was, Eli is a, is a really interesting teacher to be around. And mostly if, when I was with around Eli, it was always, I never took a class with him. I was his TA once, you know, so I, I would go watch him work with other people. Um, and I learned a lot from that too, um, just like how to, not necessarily work with students, but then how to sort of try it again to inspire them to sort of, you know, work through their intuition in a way. Um, but in all, in, but any chance I could, I would go to Eli's office and just talk to him to pick his brain. You know, and that's what was like the biggest experience with Eli was just because he had been through so much and seen so much. And Eli is interesting because he has a really... A lot of students find it hard to, to do that with Eli because Eli is very circular in like thinking in the way like you have to Eli's gonna have a point, but the point may be like in a circle. <laughs> and you have to go with him in the journey on that circle to get to the, the point which is gold. But you have to hang out there long enough to catch the gold from Eli. He's so it's not like a to the point direct teacher, but his lessons always sort of come back if you if you can hang with him. And because of that, you know, and one thing with Eli was just seeing him work, you know, sometimes I'd be amazed and all of a sudden we see these pictures and like out of nowhere, like, wow, where did this picture come from in his current work? And he just would blow me away. He also was like very into like, you know, showing us his work and treating us as, you know, not as equals because we're not we weren't equals, but he would, he, he, he would treat us like we were like, you know, photographers and we're out when, and we're going to go do important work. Um, so it wasn't like, it was like an all thing all the time, but it was definitely like, I tried to like be around him as much as possible just to pick up as much as I could um, from Eli. Man, that, that must've been amazing to, to, to just had an experience with two, those two individuals. Um, yes. um, but yeah, so you mentioned earlier your reasoning for moving to West Virginia um, and that was to work in the communications department um, there, are, can you tell me what you're still doing? Are you still doing that job there? But then also, while you're at West Virginia, you you decide to continue your photographic education uh, with an emphasis in art this time. Um, and I can see in your work all the historical references and your approach intellectually 
to the work, it, it's still sort of from that standpoint as a journalist, you want to you want to dig through these archives and do all this research and, and gather your sources and then make your your assessment through the through the photographs. Can you just mm -hmm. take us through that a little bit? Um, yeah, so I came out. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the reasons I went to grad school the first time at UT was to, uh, sort of to ride out the recession that was happening in, 20, in 2010 and 2012. Um, so uh, I, after I got done, I was broke, so broke. Um, and that was like my main reason why I ended up moving to Appalachia and West Virginia, because um, they were hiring and they gave me a job working for their, initially working within their communications department. Um, so I did that for about almost seven years. Um, it, you know, first multimedia production, primarily working um, to make marketing videos, and slowly moving back into photography and a little bit of art direction for the for their alumni magazine. Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of it was like evolving my path into more of a little bit more of an editor. And so following now, I think I started this job in February this year, um, right before COVID, which is amazing. <laughs> It's not a good time to start a new job, <laughs> but uh, so I started this job as director of community storytelling for the Center for Resilient Communities, which is a new center within the geography department of Western University. Um, this, so I took that job because this is my first time to be a director and sort of was trying to help an, other organizations think about storytelling and also to allow myself to expand a little bit more um, to see what I can do with everything that I know now from, you know, writing to photography to podcasting. Um, I just want to see, you know, how to stretch my wings as fully as I could in the space while, while I was here. Mm -hmm. um, but during that same time, I, like a couple years ago, well, almost, I'm in my third year of my MFA. So two years ago, exactly, or before then, actually, I, I don't know. So what happened was Trump got elected. <laughs> so I was, before, like, my big project between grad school programs uh, between U University of Texas and Western University was my Justice Undone project, which is on incarceration, like looking at the impact of incarceration on minority communities in America. Um, and that project, you know, I, my reasoning for doing that project, which was really challenged in 2016, 2016, right? Uh, yeah. So it was, yeah. my reason for doing that project, which is really challenging in, in 2016, was like, why was I doing that work? You know, what was that work meant to do? Um, who was I doing it for? And all these questions were slamming me in my, in my face after Trump was elected. Um, because I was like, wow. So I'm, I'm looking at incarceration. I'm taking these pictures of children. I have purposely avoided certain things in this work to be like, I wanted, I wanted, I was looking for sympathy. I wanted the viewer to have sympathy with the people within the frame. Like, it's almost like I was trying to make them palatable for people, my audience. And also, well, who's your audience? And my audience was mostly white folks, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. of a certain economic strata. And I realized like, so are you making work to make black people more palatable to white people? You know, it, maybe it was, wasn't as simple as that, but I, in my brain, that was what was echoing in my head. Um, and and especially after then Trump was elected, I was just so devastated by this fact. And I really wanted to find a new way um, to make work. And mm -hmm. 
So during the same time, I'm also, um, I am like pretty book driven. Sometimes books will be the things that inspire me to do a project. Um, I came across one. The first book was um, Christina Sharp in uh, Christina Sharp in the Wake of Blackness and Being was the first mm-hmm. book I came across. Um, and very shortly after, I came across a book a, a, by a geographer, I believe, um, and her name is Caroline Finney, and her book was called uh, uh, Black Faces in White Spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two things, like, you know, Christina Sharp's book and talking about wake work and talking about ways in which to, you know, challenge, you know, to look at, you know, wake work being a thing in, in which, like, in, so black experiences in those sort of wake of slavery and essentially to interrupt that work is wake work in a way. Like, what can you do to disrupt these histories and these imaginings? And I think I pulled from a series of sort of my first post photojournalism series is called Imaging Imagining, um, which I pretty much pulled out of, you know, the theory from Christina Sharp's book to think about, you know, the African-American experience with the environment. Um, and the reason why I came to that project was essentially was that I, I don't know why, I think I had read, um, read the uh, Karen Ann Finney's book and I was like, oh, let me, yeah, what are visual representation of black people in the environment in the United States? <laughs> so I, I Googled it, black people in trees. That's like in, you know, Google, you know, skewed, but I, I Googled black people in trees and what came up was about 80 to 85% lynching photographs and um, yeah, a couple pictures of white people in hammocks, you know, still. Um, but when I did the same thing for white people in trees, um, it was an opposite kind of visual. There were a couple of lynching images, but most of it was like recreation, enjoying the woods. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Just that thought. And like, and then I was like, started thinking like, when have I ever seen, what have I seen that, you know, a rep, that represents African-Americans connection to the environment? Like my personal experience then was like looking at like, is the woods were a place when I was younger that we didn't go. Like black people in my family didn't, like didn't go there. Um, amongst my peer group, we were kind of afraid of these spaces. And uh, I mean, that's just me specifically and some of the people within my life. But I thought like, yeah, what, what was this disconnect? Cause I know for a fact that like, you know, my people come from farmers, you know, and the connection to the land. So um, when, when did this happen? You know, realizing also a lot of my people left farming to go to the city you know, during the great migration. So, yeah. So I just wanted to like initially the very first project this is even pre-grad school was just to visualize black people in the space. Um, mm-hmm. The same time trying to use aesthetics of, of the lynching images that I've seen um, and just uh, in the archives. So black and white, heavy flash um, images. Yeah. Did I cover it all or did I just kind of, I feel like I didn't, did I cover, did I miss something? No. I, well, I was going to ask you a follow-up question yeah, okay. yeah, about yeah. the body of work. Uh, yeah. Im, is it Im, imaging, ima- imagining, or is it's- it? It's sorry. It's it's imaging, imagining. Yeah. So yeah. you had this body of work titled "Imaging, Imagining." You just spoke about it a, a little bit briefly. Um, you're looking at African Americans and their relationships to the woods, uh, being out in nature, uh, and you're doing it through these portraits. Um, but this also, as you mentioned earlier, is it's sort of in contrast or parallel with these social and cultural 
uh, history of slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, mass incarceration in America. So how does all that tie in to why these poor, these uh, portraits are important for you to share with the world? I mean, for me, it was simply a, a question of like trying to fill the visual gap in the archive. Um, at this point, all I wanted to do was like, I wanted to be, because I'm an image maker, I use a camera and I make images. So I wanted to do my part to add into the canon. Like, like we need more pictures of black people in these spaces. Um, this is before I really started to get into archives and what they mean. This is literally I was trying to add to an archive. And, mm -hmm. and almost hoping that these things, no matter how romantic they might be, would to help start to heal this connection. So if there are enough images there that represent us in the space, then we can begin to start to reclaim these spaces. Um, that was my thinking, like pre-grad school, pre-MFA brain. <laughs> and how has your MFA experience been so far, like compared to your undergraduate and your first, your, uh, first master's degree, the MA at uh, University of Austin, Texas, um, University of Texas, Austin? Um, how was it compared um, to those two and, and, and things you're thinking about now? Yeah, I mean, before UT taught me to be a really good storyteller, like how to put together stories, how to think about contemporary issues and how to then sort of um, form those into packaged stories for a public. Um, MFA school is kind of, kind of blowing my brain and making me challenge the very nature of the thing that I use on the medium that I work with. Um, and then the question everything basically. So they're almost complete opposites in a way. Like one, I was constructing, like this is how you construct meaning and then the MFA is making, this is how you deconstruct meaning, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And I've been in that space, you know, and what's cool about the MFA space for me is that I, I Yeah, it's, it's it's a space that I can never, I can always ask these questions that I will probably never find all the answers to. And I think I really like that. <laughs> like, I really like being able to explore and go down rabbit holes um, aesthetically, intellectually, and not be so done. In grad school or in journalism, there's always like uh, your attention span, or maybe like I would do a story and not be done with that story, stories on shelf. And here, um, when I'm working doing more artwork it's just there's never an answer really but the process is experiencing the process of making the work is the important thing i think yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i can yeah. i can see it in your work because i've been following your work for for quite a few years now and um going back to the the, the, uh, the work that you made at ut um I can't recall the name of that project, but I, I, I can see the images in my head right now. But then also um, the images dealing with incarceration and just to see your evolution um, in, in becoming an artist is really no surprise to me. Um, and especially uh, in relation to the images that I wanna talk about now uh, that, that lie on the Appala Appalachian ghosts. Um, and this, this is going to take me a while to set up because there's a, a bunch of things that I want to hit on. Yeah. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to let it flow because okay. it's a bunch of different projects under Appalachian Ghosts. Yeah. But um, 
it's it, it, that 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 title is an umbrella over a larger project. And um, when I first saw these images, I was very excited and immediately pulled in. I can really tell you found something firstly uh, unique, um, but you also care deeply for what you wanted to share with the larger audience. Um, but it was authentic, authentically from your voice. You, you, you're, you're authentically using your voice to express the meaning behind this archive. And so there's a title under Appalachian Ghost called The Dust, and that references the narrative of the Hawk's Nest Tunnel uh, from uh, Galley Bridge, West Virginia. Yeah, um, Gully Bridge, West Virginia. Gully Bridge, West Virginia. Um, from 1930, when um, the construction started on that, 3,000 men dug a three-mile hole through Sandstone Mountain, but they were mostly uh, Black migrants from the South. Um, they had exposure to pure silica dust, and a lot of your images uh, deal with that specifically uh, from, due to these improper drilling techniques. And then there was a large death toll associated with that uh, due to illness from inhaling that silica dust. But then within this project, you're also dealing with the archive and specifically the archive and its narrative and the impact on marginalized groups and the telling of their visual history. And you're also dealing with the colonial gaze. Um, so Raymond, whichever direction you wanna take uh, to start down this path, but I wanna hear, hear it all. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I first heard about um, the Hawks Nest Tunnel disaster from um, a book called um, The Book of the Dead by Merle Ruckheiser. And the book's cool, right? It's essentially, um, it's a book of poetry. Um, and there's also an essay by um, Catherine Moore in the beginning of it, which gives a lot of good context for the story. Um, but Merle Ruckheiser had, my guess, heard about this story back in 19, 1935 in a communist newspaper or a socialist newspaper. Uh, and then she went from New York down to West Virginia to sort of interview and cover what was happening. Um, at the same time, I believe there were a couple Senate trials, at least one Senate trial happening. And people, there's still a ton of workers alive, but they were dying. Um, and she went down and interviewed people, community members and talked to a bunch of people and went into the spaces. And then instead of like producing like a written report or a film, she produced poetry, um, which is like immediately really, really, really interesting for me and also drew me in. But it just drew me into the story also because I am not a West Virginia native, um, but I know the, how much West Virginians um, put on pedestal the minor. And even to this day, but I was always I'm so so shocked that there was very little representation of this incident in history. And within the book, some people were calling this the worst industrial disaster in United States history. Um, but yet, no one talked about it, and the natives who are from here didn't know about it. Um, what really hooked me was going actually to the the, the sites themselves. Um, first place I went to was uh, there's a Hawksness Workers Cemetery off of uh, Route 19 in West Virginia, and it's about five ten miles outside Summersville, West Virginia, and it's along the side of the road of the highway. If you blink, you would miss it. <laughs> it's because it's literally um, you know West Virginia's hills and mountains. It's, it's sort of down in a little down a little bit hill off to the side. 
Um, I went down in there and in the space, there are about, I want to say 15 to 20 plywood crosses um, that basically represent, uh, they were essentially workers who had died at the tunnel and were tr transported about 30 miles away to be buried. Um, and at the time the company was paying to move workers, uh, when they died to quickly move them away and there were undertakers who would come get bodies and bury them. Um, in this situation, the bodies are buried in what is believed to be a cornfield and forgotten about. And when the state went to build a road, the bodies were rediscovered and they had to move them over into this one space. So going into that space and then realizing, was being told that each one of those crosses represented three bodies and they don't know who any of these people are, it was like haunting. And at the time, the space was a little bit overgrown, it just wasn't feeling that cared for. There, even though there are people, there, there's an organization working to, to maintain it to put up a really, a really beautiful granite marker. Um, but this is like one of the only representations of that this even happened in West Virginia was this is cemetery. Um, there is a tour you can do around Anstead, West Virginia um, at the Hawkson State Park. And at the Hawkson State Park, there is one plaque um, that has a number like 115 workers died. Um, so that number doesn't even represent the true scale of what happened. So, I mean, and that plaque is kind of not at, you have to, you have to go there cause it's a, it's a state park and it's a beautiful scenic overlook. And you go there and you look down and you see, you see the river, um, you can see the dam that was built. Um, and then you can see this beautiful space and people stop there all the time and like take pictures of each other. And to me, like it's a haunted space now and with a very little recognition of what's happened in that space. So going there and then going down to below the dam, um, there's a space that you can go really right below the dam on the river. Um, and that was even more haunting because you're also dealing with the power of water, the sound of the water, the, the, the moisture in the air for being so close to it. All at the same time realizing that this is like not a safe space to be. And, you know, and then you look up on the side of this hill and literally if you find old photographs from the archive, you can see where all these little cabins were, these 10 by 15 foot cabins all over the sides of the hill, um, which were quickly uh, demolished as soon as they were done with construction. So the land is haunted <laughs> in a way for me. Um, and it's, it's in that, in, is in that space that I was, became really interested in figuring out more about it. Um, and I wanted to, to figure out a way to talk about it, to, you know, to discover more things. Um, I had seen, you know, within the books, of course, is that the, there's a, these, the, fam more, the famous Hawkins photographs that they have in the books. There's like two or three of them. Um, there's one, this real ghostly one where someone's walking out of a tunnel. There's this group shot of a bunch of people in them. And then I, had talk, I was talking to Catherine Moore and she's telling me, well, there's this archive down, down at the, the state archives where there's more pictures, you should go check it out. And from there, when I went down there to actually sit within the state archives and they brought me about two big file folders full of um, images from Hawk's Nest. Um, now, so the archive itself is very, um, there were about 400 pictures. Um, and most of those 400 pictures represent uh, like essentially like an in, uh, uh, industrious, uh, no, industrial process of constructing a dam. So there's like pictures of them putting in turbines, there's all kinds of building pictures from every angle. But within those building pictures, you see people occasionally within those spaces. Um, I don't know exactly the size of the negatives because um, 
the archive doesn't have negatives. They only have uh, like reproductions on, on, on paper, um, basically. But my guess, maybe it was 8x10 camera. And a lot of shots have the 8x10 view camera wide look. So people are really tiny in them. Um, so out of the 400-ish image, it, let me know if I'm going randomly along. <laughs> it's like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay, Raymond, because it's, it's a long story. Yeah. And I really want people to understand oh, yeah. Sweet. the depth of it. Yeah, so out of those 400 pictures, I want to say about 10 or so have recognizable faces in them. Um, and those are the ones that I sort of have clung to for this project. Um, so I had that set. It also had a set of pictures in which people, like one image in which people look like they've been erased, but I can talk about that one later. Um, and on the back of each picture says, um, I forgot what... It's it's like the Canal Valley's uh, I can't remember the exact name of the company that was a subsidiary of Union Carbide. Um, so each one has like you know picture at heading tunnel number blah 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 workers and that's it. So the archive has very little captioned information in in these photographs. Um, so and there are a few that are portraits right that I ended up being really drawn to like. I want, like I would go into Photoshop and I would zoom into them and see these faces. I was like, oh, these people, there's like these men in the space and they're just there. Some are like showing so much personality, like how can I deal with this? And it kind of, I cut them out and put them on my wall, um, like eight by tens of each little section. And they were really there for like six months, maybe nine months, just on my studio wall, just looking at them. I was just drawn to them in a way. But while I was doing that, I was simply wanted to, you know, think about, so how can I, you know, I want to know what it felt like. I want to like. I want to be like that person. I want to look over my shoulder and see my fellow worker and look at them through this dust that they didn't know that was landing on them and essentially was going to, you know, scar up their lungs and make it so they couldn't breathe anymore. Um, and at the same time, knowing that like it must have been. Um, there's one image in the archive of this figure walking out of this dust. It's like constantly beautiful, you know, coming out of this this, this, this cloud of beauty basically it's like fog um realizing then like and that's why i kind of made this, this first set of pictures the portraits of the of workers um you know what if someone actually would have taken the time to go in a tunnel to make more pictures about the people and not just about the industrial process you know and i wanted to make those images because they didn't exist sort of the same thing i was doing with the imaging imagining project that's like i want these these images don't exist at first and i want to create a few that sort of touch back to what happened um so that's why i think i made that first um the dust series within the appalachian ghost project was just that desire to add to the archive at the same time i mean i can go to what's the next one on there uh you can talk about the the 12 men and literally, I mean, 12 Men was my attempt, like I had archival images and realizing that again, like this project was made by, okay. And also let me back up. Also, the thing that also I thought about a lot was that the fact that, um, that archive, oh, let me tell you a story. So I was down there and at the archives and I was like, why are these all in like, you know, copy paper. <laughs> it's like, I was like, you guys have real prints somewhere you don't want to show me just because, basically? And they're like, no, that's what the company brought in. And they told me the story about the company had like flown in these pictures and let them photocopy them and then took the originals and left. 
I was like, what? What is this? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, so literally this is like a company's interpretation of a historical thing in which everyone else draws their understanding of Hawksnuts from. And that blew my mind. I was like, so our archive that we all draw our understanding of what happened to this visually is all made by the same company that's basically responsible for all these deaths. Like, so what's missing? <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that was a question that I asked a lot. And also, you know, so that, I mean, that was what kind of drove me in my work was like, okay, I'm gonna take these archives and try to reclaim what I can from what's available. Um, and I was also at the time, like I think studying a lot of Karen May Weems' work and um, looking at what she did with, uh, there's a series and it's a really long title. It's from, from here, I, oh my God. Uh, from, I think it's like from, from here, what I had saw, we may have just messed it up, but um, yeah. <laughs> looking at that daguerreotype archive, right? Yes. Looking at, yeah, the stuff she got, looking at the images she got from the Getty Museum of Louis Agassiz's slave daguerreotypes and the way in which she both cropped the, cropped the images and dented them and sort of, you know, etched words uh, over top of them and the way in which she took those images that were, again, archive images meant to portray African-Americans under a certain light of inferiority. She took those archive images and she was able to reclaim them and to make them portraits. And that was sort of inspired me to sort of do the same thing with some of these Hawknest figures. Um, so in 12 Men, when literally I, I ended up simply cutting them out and blowing them up to like 72 inches by 44 inches. So these are very big. Um, these are, they're digital scans, so they're very grainy, but they do this thing that they sort of like, you know, at different distances, they your brain works to make sense of the digital noise. And that makes gives an extra layer of hauntedness, which I don't think comes through online. Um, so that was that body of work. And basically I took so many different approaches. One, I was trying to figure out like how being a photojournalist and always working for what's in, what was in front of me, like how do I, um, how do I figure out a way to work with work when I have very little information and I'm dealing with like poetry, myth, or, or um, poetry's myth um, or history. So I was trying a bunch of different techniques. Um, and a lot of it was, was sort of like, you know, um, reenacting with uh, the dust to more like still life images with uh, tunnelitis. And tunnelitis, part of the Appalachian Ghost series is kind of inspired from like, a set of images inspired from one poem from Merlin Workhouse's book called um, Tunnelitis. And basically, uh, without having to read it to you at the end, um, the, the narrator of the poem is like, um, so, we went into every, so everyone went into the tunnel um, at night, um, every, like, you know, either black or white, but when everyone came out, they were all white because <laughs> the dust covered everything, you know? So, and the, the entirety of the environment within this. So from there was why I sort of was like, oh man, what, it was, what would it have been like to be, to be like, to realize that you walk out of the tunnel, you look down at your hands after a day of work and you're just like covered in this white dust. And then you look up and see the trees all around you all also saturated in this, in this substance. At the same time, it being beautiful in some ways, but then also not realizing that it was a death sentence. 
Um, so from that one, uh, I think, what was the last one? This one more, right? Oh, one more, the other one was just, uh, again, uh, in one of the images I discovered, it looks like people had been um, either like chemically removed from the image and I just sort of used that and other archive materials that I've, I found letters in the archive of people, victims who had written about what it was like to be in a tunnel. Um, so I combined those letters and other images together that that basically speak directly to what it felt like to be in this space. And there's some pretty, again, like not down in the state archive, but the archive at WU, they have letter the letters of Senator Holt, who was a U.S. senator, and they have like real legit actual letters of Huxness victims. Um, and a few of them write about their experiences of what it was like to be there. Um, yeah. So I was able to sit down and look through that stuff as well. So in some ways, it's very much like being an investigator, you know? Yeah. And I think like what you're describing and, and sort of what I'm, I'm trying to summarize all this up to is this, you're looking at this absence in erasure of these folks. Um, but now through art, it's allowing you to recontextualize or reimagine um, this archive actually make the people exist <laughs> in your own way in 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 um the the pictures the portraits are very speculative you know they're they're almost they reference a past but they also reference sort of this uh futuristic possibility or afrofuturist um sort of aesthetic um if you will but then also like recently you know, those that work was in the Rust Belt uh, biannual, right? Biannual. Yeah. And then also you just won the student prize from Lynn Scratch for this Appalachian Ghost series. Yes. Uh, so we... Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say like, yeah, um, another reason why I went down the fine art path was because I didn't want to be limited with only being... St- I didn't want to be limited to just working in the present. In photojournalism, like you're limited to now, what's in front of you. And so much of African-American history that I want to dealt with was in the past. But at the same time, again, I did want to figure out how do also do I point to the future. So the spaces I was interested in as an artist, as a photographer, was past, future, some in the present. But I wanted to be able to touch those spaces that working just in photojournalism wasn't going to allow me to do. Um, and again, also, honestly, I... Like thinking about my audience, like I was making this work for like me or my son or other other black people. Like I wasn't, like I think I switched also who I wanted initially to see this work or understand it even, you know, which is important yeah. to me. Like I wanted it to be like the heel or to be like, you know, you are a part of this history. You were important. You did these things. Because um, so much is erased. So much is missing or so much wasn't written down. Um, and this is like, you know, this project was part of that for me and sort of where I've been moving with my work as of late. Yeah, I had sort of a similar experience when I saw Latoya Ruby Frazier's work. Uh, that was a different perspective and twist on what documentary photography was or what how I was taught it should be up until that point. I had never seen the photographer in the telling of their own story in front of the lens and then also seeing Hank Willis Thomas's work and sort of at play with these huge cultural 
uh, uh, signifiers like uh, Master Visa card and uh, taking branded ads and, and, and stripping away all the text and just uh, studying the image and um, just so in many other ways that he approaches uh, art making. But yeah, uh, being coming from the photojournalism background, being stuck in the present, um, I like how you phrased that because that's what it was for me. <laughs> just being stuck there and having a desire to want to explore all these other ways uh, to see the world and to yeah. share histories with people. Yeah. You know, plus, I think when I was in grad school the first time, I think uh, Magnum had did like uh, a symposium at University of Texas. And I think Fred Rankin had come to speak. I think he said something about, you know, he, he's never seen a medium so in love with the 1930s. <laughs> like, and I kind of, I got, that, stuck, that stuck in my brain forever. I was like, oh, yeah, this really hasn't changed in 100 years. <laughs> it's like, Every this, you know, our our heroes, our our aesthetic techniques have been locked in place for so long, and that also, you know, sent me searching, like looking for other ways to work. You've been working on Appalachian Ghosts for uh, going on three years now, um, in the third year, and so I imagine this is the work for your thesis show for your MFA. If it's not, um, nope. uh, um. <laughs> Appalachian Ghost is like... Uh, is the Appalachian Ghost finished or what is it? It is like, I, I would say it's 90% done. There's like, there's, I don't even, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get to it yet, but it's it's in the landscape, I think, for me, one more one more leg for the landscape before I say it's done, done. Um, but I'm, I'm confident with it like, and now as it is, like the stuff that's out there is is, is going to be what it is, but I think I can add, I have one more layer that I want, I want to add to it. Um, but again, you know, being in, you know, MFA, they, you know, do, do another project, Raymond. So I started working on another project. <laughs> um, so I have been working on like, basically, like one of the, the things I kind of call forth to defend Appalachian Ghosts was this, because everyone's asking specifically my, my faculty is like, so what's your connection to the story? Like, why are you the one to tell the story basically? And, and I always sort of like, well, like, I'm interested in this because, like, my grandfather or my or my family has this 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 artificial barrier of memory, um, which stretches back to around 1930s, and it's like literally around that time. Like, I know my grandfather went from North Carolina to Baltimore to work at Bethlehem Steel to be a welder. Um, but before then, like, no one knows anything about the life, his life or family's life pass backwards in North Carolina. Like in that wall of hysterical memory that erasure that happens around that point is the thing that makes me interested in the subject matter. Um, so, I, so I ended up deciding to go directly to that source for my thesis and I'm trying to make work using the same, some of the same techniques I've been developing, but just focusing on that, that line of erasure within my personal history and family. Um, and again, there's there's mostly only oral history and myth to work from. Um, the archives that I have to work from are going to be are so very little too. So I'm, I've been like fishing through the Library of Congress archive, um, pulling images from there to work with. Uh, I've been like so you know I found out like grandfather was a great grandfather was a according to the 1920 census was a general farmer. 
the part of North Carolina where he's from, they grew t- cotton and tobacco and probably corn. Um, so all these like tobacco and corn have become themes within this new set of work I'm working on. So that's been the, so what you've been sharing on Instagram with the tobacco leaves and, and in this process of transferring images or exp- adding yeah. emulsion to the tobacco leaf and, and producing images out of that, that's where yeah. that's from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm basically making chlorophyll prints um, using tobacco and uh, li- images from the Library of Congress um, to sort of, yeah, to sort of touch on th- those themes. I've, I've been I've been growing the tobacco myself, which is pretty wild. Sort of documenting that process. It, it's when this process. This project is also becoming me documenting myself as an investigator, as an archivist. Um, going through the process of looking. Um, and unfortunately COVID happened. I really hoped to get down there and mm-hmm. spend some time in the environment and making work, which will probably have to happen post grad school at this point, like, or next summer, um, unless a miracle happens. Um, so again, again, I've been forced to work in the house and I've taken mostly working with this library Congress archive in a couple of different ways. And we're, you know, the, the, the tobacco prints are the, newest iteration, which I'm right in the middle of uh, trying to uh, make those. But they're, I, I like what they're doing so far. Um, yeah, that's exciting. I, I can't wait to see the, the product that you come up with uh, for, for thesis. And, and speaking of documenting yourself, there's a, a video on Vimeo on your page that's talking about the Appalachian Ghost story. So I'm going to leave a link to that in the stories and people can see you um, with some of the, the, the prints and um, stuff from that body of work and you at the actual location, uh, present day. So it was very well done. Um, and I think people should see that. Um, and I can't wait to, wait to see this new uh, uh, documentation of yourself. It, will it be shared? Yeah, definitely. When I, when I finally get it done, I imagine like sometime in the fall, Cause I'm still like, basically every day I take a still, still photographs of my three plants and then you just shoot some video of it. Um, I don't know how that's all going to work together yet, but I've been ever since there, I bought them as seedlings. Even when I like, you know, went online and I like, you know, quick time video of me buying it. So it's going to take it from me buying it, purchasing it and growing it, um, to eventually making these, these contact, uh, core fill prints, um, on the leaves themselves. So yeah, it's going to be. Honestly, my, my biggest challenge right now is like how to like mount them in a way that is like that the sun won't continue to die it away. Um, so that's been fun. <laughs> it's like, but it's it'll, it'll work out. So yeah, there's this is the tobacco part. There's the cotton part of this process too. I mean, not with the core footprints, but I'm also tra- working with cotton. Like I made friends or with this this guy who sells co- a black farmer down in North Carolina who sells cotton. Um, he's like. So that's going to be part of it some way. So I'm really excited to work on this thesis. Um, a lot of family history and stories. So it's going to be a lot of opportunity to figure out ways to dive into that stuff and how to like work with, you know, untangible facts, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate um, the points, uh, the vantage points and, and the perspectives of, of which you're, you're, you're working on this new body of work from because it's, you know, it's your family story. You're in it, you're a part of it, but you're also working in all these tangible ways um, uh, where your hand can make these different gestures and, and, and pe- literally piecing together all the, uh, this whole narrative. So 
Thank you so much, Raymond. Is there anything else you would like to add um, before we end? I think I covered it all. <laughs> I can't think of anything else right now. I was like, is there something else or reason why you're doing this? No, pretty much everything, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Raymond. And it's so good to catch up with you. Um, and good luck with everything moving forward. Thank you. That was my conversation with Raymond Thompson Jr. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a few announcements. Thank you all who attended the India Bill webinar lecture on last Thursday, September 3rd. I really appreciate your support. Also, the Center for Photographers of Color is curating an exhibition titled Women of the African Diaspora, Identity, Place, Migration, Immigration, featuring work by Whitling Cadet, Jasmine Clark, and Nadia Nakorda. It will be on view at Blue Sky Gallery in Portland, Oregon, November 5th through the 29th. To find out more about photographers of color, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Photogs of Color. Till next time.